time, our threes and fours are dismissed to their classes, uh, to the nursery classes uh, that we have. So threes and fours are dismissed. Everyone else, uh, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 6. So we made our way through Proverbs 1 through 5, and this morning we are in Proverbs 6. If you don't have a, a Bible with you, we've got plenty of copies. Uh, I'll just slip up your hand so we can know, and one of our members will be, be sure to grab you a copy. Uh, so Proverbs chapter 6 is where we'll be this morning. Hey, Jordan Curry, I don't mean to be a diva. Could you get me some water? <laughs> I'm so sorry. I don't mean to be that guy. You don't have, okay, he is. <coughs> Proverbs 6, uh, verses 1 through 19 is where we're going to be this morning. So the introduction to this text, Proverbs 6, verse 1 how it's introduced to us is a familiar introduction. It is the introduction, it is the voice of a father instructing his son in the way of wisdom. So far, we've seen this voice 11 times in Proverbs. This, this direct address from the father to the son saying, my son, do this. This is the 12th time that we come and we see this address from a father to the son. So we've seen the son, I mean, you see the, it almost traces the life of the son. He, the father gives instruction and wisdom to the son when he's young. Last week, we saw that the son was now married, and he, thank you so much. Um, that's good stuff. That's real good. So last week, we saw that the, the son was now married, and, and, and the father was still giving instruction, and he said, he warned him to resist, to flee from the sexual temptation outside of marriage. And this older son, who's now married, when you're married and, uh, and you're older, more responsibilities come on you. You have a household to manage. Uh, you have a family to take care of. You have a job to go to, to provide for your family, a community to engage with. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. We find the father still instructing the son in the way of wisdom, but now he's older, he's married, and he's got a job, he's got a family, he's got a, a, a assembly, the, the text before says an, an assembly, so a community that he is involved with. So this morning, that's really the workplace and work, work to do in our jobs, in our families, in our communities, that's the special emphasis that our proverb gives us how we're to be wise, and how we work, how we represent ourselves. So as always, we're going to see themes that we've already seen before in Proverbs, but with this, the, this section, we're going to give special attention to these concepts, these emphases that are unique to the chapter. Um, so if you will, uh, we're, we're going to read with me. Uh, we'll read 1 through 19, or follow along as I read, and then after we read it, I will pray for God's help that we would understand his word. Proverbs 6, verse 1. My son, if you have put up security for a neighbor, for your neighbor, have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, then do this, my son, and save yourself. For you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep, 
and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore, calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things the Lord hates, and seven that are, on, that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do pray. We pray that you would show us wisdom. Lord, we are not wise. <laughs> we, we, have, we, we don't have wisdom to take from, but you do in your word. Um, so we pray as we come to you that you would, you would bestow it upon us, that you would show us what you really have for us in your word, and that um, you would, first of all, grow us in our wisdom, but also grow us in our love for you. It is you who bestows every good gift, and it's you who, who paid the penalty so that we can even, we can have life with you, and life everlasting. So, so if you, I mean, please, Lord, we beg and plead that you would show us Christ, that you would sanctify us by your word, Lord. Your word is truth. You'd sanctify us by the truth, and that you would edify us by your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So this text breaks down into three sections. You probably, even as you were reading, if you were paying, I mean, if you just saw, um, you probably saw the three sections. Section, verses 1 through 5 is a section. Verses 6 through 11 is a section. And then verses 12 through 19 is a section. And each of these sections show us how the wise person should view work. In fact, our first truth this morning, before we even dive into what this text is telling us. Our first truth this morning acts as a bit of like a background truth or like a truth that kind of undergirds and helps us understand the whole rest of what's going on here. And this is truth number one. God is glorified in our work. God is glorified in our work. The Proverbs as a, as a whole, the Proverbs have much to say about work. Actually, some of the most, um, I don't, some of the funniest language is given to the person who doesn't work hard or the lazy person in Proverbs. Just a few. Proverbs 12, 11 says this, whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but whoever follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. Proverbs thirteen four: the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing while the soul of the diligent is richly supplied. 
And this lesson of work and working hard is only echoed in the New Testament. Paul, listen to what Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. In his instruction to the Thessalonian church, he said, For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. So we find this lesson throughout the scriptures, but really where we find the root of it and where we find the theology for work is all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2. Here we find in Genesis 1, what does God do? God creates everything. God gets to work. God works and he accomplishes things. But that's like an understatement. He creates everything through his working in six days. Genesis 2, 2 says this, and on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from the work that he had done. And Genesis 1, 28 says that humans, God worked to create humans in what? In his own image. So if God is a working God, and we're created in the image of God, that makes us working people. We read that in Genesis 2.15. You just see the work that God gives humans. In Genesis 1, he says, uh, be, subdue, the, subdue the plants and the animals. Be over the field. Work the field. Genesis 2.15 says this. The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The fact that we're to work, the fact that we are working people who have jobs, working in the household, working in our church, that's not a result of the fall. That's not a result of sin in the world. This is how we were created. We were created to work. It probably feels the opposite at times, does it not? That work and our jobs might be a result of how sinful the world is. But God created us for work. And he's glorified by the work that we do and how we work in our jobs, in our families, in our households, and yes, in our workplace and in the church. When we work, we reflect the very character of God. And this changes for me, even though I work at a church, I can think about secular work too. It's a little different, but, but it changes the way that we view work, doesn't it? Like a lot of times we, we, we talk about our jobs in good ways. We talk about our jobs as like, what's the ministry of the job? Well, I have a coworker that I really want to see come to Christ. That's my ministry. And I kind of go to work. I hate it. I hate the work, but I want to see my coworker come to Jesus. And I'm, I'm there for that. Or we, we, see job, we see our jobs as ha allowing us to make money so that we can do what we really were created to do. But how often do we see, do we see our jobs and do we see the work that God gave us to do as the means in which we glorify God? All of those things are good and true. Yeah, we, we want to make money so we can tithe and go on mission trips. And, and we want to evangelize our coworkers. Praise God. But shouldn't our perspective change when the actual act of working glorifies the working God who worked and made us? So how do you view work? How do you view the work in your life? Do you see it as a way to reflect God's image to a world that desperately needs it? Do you see it as a way to be obedient to him? Do you see it as a way to glorify God? In the proverb, this proverb, the father is instructing the son to do this, to see work in this way. And as the 
Proverbs do a lot of times, the father uses negative examples to show his point. He says, he gives temptations to sin. He, te he tells you the evils of what could happen if you do the wrong thing. And that bolsters his point of why you should do the wise thing. So let's look at, let's, let's dive into our proverb and see um, what, what these negative examples are teaching us. So before we even jump into it, let's just, let's go ahead and, so truth number one was God is glorified in our work. Truth number two is found in verses one through two. And I'll go ahead and give you the truth and then we'll look at the, at the verse. So truth number two is we are to work responsibly. We are to work responsibly. We are to work responsibly. Verses 1 and 2 outline a problem that, that the son could be in. He says this in verse 1 and 2. My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor, if you have given your pledge for a stranger, if you are snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth. So the obvious question when I read this was, what is going on? I didn't really understand what in the world he was talking about. What does it mean to put up security or to give a pledge or what, what's going on? Well, here the father is describing a bad or a risky, irresponsible financial decision. He describes somebody who puts up, if you put up security for someone, you are securing someone's ability to get a loan or to get a possession that they really want. In other words... He's talking about co-signing for a loan. Here's a person who needs help, and he's saying, if you've done this, if you have put up collateral, if you put up yourself as co-signing for a loan for this person, and then we'll, we'll see what happens for the rest. But here's a person who can't secure the things for themselves. They have, let's just think about it. They didn't have credit scores back then, but we'll draw it out to our context. They got a bad credit score uh, they're in tons of debt. They've made bad decisions in the past, and they can't get the loan for the house that they want. And now they come to you because they trust you, and or they know that you have some money. And they say, "Can you, can you put yourself up? Can you co-sign this loan for me? Can you assume my debt?" And, and the proverb says, "This is an irresponsible decision." The Federal Trade Commission, which is uh, an agency that the U.S. government of the U.S. government, whose sole job is to protect us and to have it's a civil law for protecting people from getting scammed in these situations. Listen to listen to how the Federal Trade Commission talks about co-signing for loans. This is what it says. It's on the screen. I took this right from their website. You are being asked to guarantee this debt. Think carefully before you do. If the borrower does not pay the debt, you will have to. Be sure you can afford to pay it if, if you have to and that you want to accept this responsibly. You may have to put up the full amount of debt if the borrower does not pay. You may also have to pay late fees or collection costs, which increase this amount. The creditor can collect this debt from you without first trying to collect from the borrower. The creditor can use the same collection methods against you that can be used against the borrower, such as suing you, garnishing your wages, etc., if this debt is ever in default, the fact, that fact, may become part of your credit record. That sounds a lot like what the farmer, oh, sorry, not farmer, father warns the son about, does it not? Being snared or caught 
in the pledge that you made to someone else. And this can apply not just to co-signing for a loan. This can apply to all types of debt that we take on. Whether it's, I mean, there's tons of irresponsible financial decisions that we can make or have made in the past. From co-signing a loan, like uh, we have already talked about that, trusting and hoping, they'll pay, they'll pay. Or, or maybe it's putting a bunch of stuff on a credit card with 25, 24% interest and that you can never think about paying back in, in, in the future. Maybe it's getting the brand new car that you really want but will ensnare you and catch you for years. And we'll, our debts can hold us hostage. This isn't Financial Peace University, but this is what the proverb talks about. <laughs> our debts can shackle us and hold us and listen to what the father pleads with the son to do. Listen to the father in verse 3. He says, do this. Like if you're caught in this situation and you're struggling, he says, do this, my son, and save yourself. For if you've come into the hand of your neighbor, go, hasten, or humble yourself. Humble yourself and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of a hunter and a bird from the hand of the fowler. The father says, get out. Free yourself by whatever means necessary. Don't go to sleep until you've taken responsibility over your own life. Eat some humble pie and make it right, is what the Father says. Listen, the Lord wants us to be generous, right? There's no denying that. God wants us to be generous. But he doesn't want us to make irresponsible decisions that shackle us for the rest of our lives and that are a detriment to our families. Because let's be honest, if, if we co-sign a loan for somebody or, or lend, somebody a loan, lend somebody money and kind of keep interest, keep tabs of it, uh, I mean, that's not really helpful. That can separate relationships. That can add a wedge between. And it's only perpetuating a problem. The, the point of this proverb is not to say, never give money to anybody. If you've got money and you can give it to somebody and say, don't worry about paying me back, like, it's a gift. Praise God. That's a gift of grace. You can, you can do that without endangering your family. Go for it. That's great. Praise the Lord. But the lesson is clear here. If you're in debt, you need to get free from it and take back responsibility over our lives. Or if you've asked somebody to assume your debt, we need to set them free because it's shackling them. So truth number two is we're to work responsibly. We're to work responsibly. Truth number three, we'll see it in the next section, verses 6 through 11. It's, truth number three is this, we're to work hard. We are to work hard. Verse six, follow along as I read. He says this, go to the ant. So after you've made right your wrongs, after you've freed yourself from the shackles that hold you, go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. That's what the, that's what the sluggard says. It's just a little sleep, a little slumber. I'm just resting. And 11 says, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and 
and want like an armed man. The warning from the father here, the temptation is to, to, the warning is don't be a sluggard. Don't be lazy. Think about a slug or what it means to be sluggish. You just kind of mosey on down the path, uh, not really sure of their direction. Uh, If they've got a direction, they probably forgot it because it's so slow working down that path. It describes the sluggard as someone who's lazy. Look at Look at verse 9 with me. Verse 9 says this. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you rise from your sleep? Get out of bed, dude. What are you doing? Sleeping until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. How long will you lie there? The sluggard is described in the Proverbs as never finishing things. Listen to Proverbs 19.24. It's on the screen. The sluggard, just picture this. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. So he's eating food. It says the sluggard buries his hand in the dish and will not even bring it back to his mouth. He starts a task and then forgets what he's doing halfway through eating. The sluggard never finishes things. The sluggard constantly makes excuses and pushes decisions down the road, never taking advantage of the opportunities they've been given. Look at, listen to Proverbs 26, 13. This is baked in a, um, a bigger portion, but this is what it says. The sluggard says, there's a line in the road. There's a line in the streets. And the rest of the proverb basically just says, there's not a line on Main Street, dude. You're making an excuse. Get out of your house and go to work. There's not a lion roaming down St. Rose Avenue. That's an excuse. And then it says in verse 16, he says, the sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Sluggard makes excuses, never really makes the action to to do anything. So what's the lesson for the lazy person, the sluggard that he warns? What does verse 6 say? Go to the ant and consider her ways. The lesson is, go outside, find an anthill, don't get stung, and take notes while you watch them work. But what's the point? Why, why pull out an ant from this? Well, well, Ray Ortland, who is a pastor, um, and he's done a lot of work in the Proverbs. It might be small, but I'll read. Hopefully you can follow along. This is what he says about this section of Proverbs. He says, how humiliating. The sluggard wouldn't mind learning from Jonathan Edwards or like pull in like big name, really cool philosophizer here. Wouldn't mind learning from that dude who has tons of influence The sluggard likes to philosophize. He likes to debate and speculate and bandy highfalutin ideas around with his buddies. But wisdom is saying, go watch an ant. I don't know anyone who has a PhD in antology. We want to study, we want to study big, important things. But we need to humble ourselves and admit our need and accept God's simple remedy. It's so humbling. This is profound to me. It's so humbling that we, whom God created to rule over creation, need to go learn to live from an ant, the smallest of his creation. That was profound for me. So what do ants do? Why are they worth studying? Our proverb says that the the ants work hard without anyone standing over them and making them do the work. They gather their food in summer. During the hottest parts of the year, the ant is getting after it. Have you ever seen an ant, a group of ants, just like chilling in a circle, hanging out? I don't think so. 
And they're like, do you have like an, I don't even know. I don't think so. I was trying to think of, I've never seen it. Every time I've observed ants, what are they doing? They're like taking little tiny molecules of like a leaf back to their house. Or have you ever left during the summer, like left a popsicle out? And what do you see? The ants get in a row and they take like a tiny morsel of sugar. And they're like, got my work done. And they take it back to their house. Like, there's no boss ant who's observing, cracking the whip and saying, do this, do this, do this. They're working hard to prepare for their future. Most of their work, most of their work can't be seen in that moment. Like collecting, I know I'm thinking Bugs Life, so you might be tracking with me. But most of their work, they gather a little piece, a little piece, a little piece. At the end of one day, they might look at, if they were discouraged, they'd say, what am I doing? There's no point in the work that I'm doing. But after months and months and months of doing the same thing every day, they've got plenty of food to sustain them through the summer. The ants are not interested in a get-rich-quick scheme. They collect, they do the same thing, and get to work every day. They work hard. And the next thing you know, when winter rolls around, they can enjoy it. As followers of Christ... Our churches, our families should look like anthills. Everyone has a job to do. First of all, we've, we've got jobs where we can go and glorify God by simply working. God doesn't require that much. Just go and do your job, and it glorifies him. But also, we've all been given a commission from Christ himself to go and make disciples, to go and, and tell others about Jesus Christ, to encourage the 150 other church members here. That's our job. We don't need motivation from anyone else. We've been given a task from Jesus Christ himself. So even if, even if it feels some days like you're not getting anything done, if you're being faithful and doing it, you're getting stuff done. So how do you view work? Do you look like an ant or do you look like a sluggard most days? Are you always procrastinating always making excuses, always putting off tomorrow what can really be done today, lacking motivation, wanting to get rich quick without like just doing your job, never really knowing where you're going. If so, this is a warning for you. Verse 10 says this, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. This is what comes. This is the end. And then poverty will come upon you like a robber, and want like an armed man. But there's another way other than the sluggard. Study the ant. Work hard. Stop making excuses as to why you are the way that you are. God has given you a job to do and a task. So do it. God has given you Christ. Let's get to work. And let's reflect him to a world that needs to see and know him. So work hard for the glory of Christ. Truth number four. Or sorry, truth number three. And then truth number four is this. We are to work for unity. We are to work for unity. You might think for yourself, um, if you're following along on the, on the notes, I changed it up a little bit. So if it doesn't fit, I'm sorry. We're to work for unity. You might be saying, you might be saying what, is that, 
Meaning that kind of, uh, we'll, we'll get there. We'll, we'll, we'll look at what it is. This is coming from verses 12 through 19. I'll just read that section. It says this. A worthless person, a wicked man, goes about with crooked speech, winks with his eyes, signals with his feet, points with his finger, with perverted heart devises evil, continually sowing discord. Therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment he will be broken beyond healing. There are six things the Lord hates, and seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, and false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Once again, the father gives this negative example. He says, this is what wisdom does not look like. In fact, verse 12 says, this person is worthless, a wicked man. Verse 16 says that the Lord hates this type of person. It's an abomination to him. The word abomination here means it literally makes God sick to his stomach. It makes him get sick to his stomach when he looks upon this person. Verse 16, there's six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. When I first read this, Zach Penwell can attest to this, we kind of sat around this verse and said, what does that mean? <laughs> Six things plus seven, like, what's going on here? Well, in, in my study, two things popped out. Number one, this is repeated. This type of literary device is in Proverbs a bunch of times. There is blank number of things, comma, blank number, plus one of that number. There's three things, then four. There's six things, then seven. Number one, it's, it's meant to be, it's meant to help us memorize. Like, oh, we need to memorize this list. There's six planks plus seven. It's meant to help memorize. I think if we knew Hebrew and studied Hebrew, it'd probably pop off the page to us, but we don't. So number one, helps us memorize things. And number two, the reason why he says it this way, it is to emphasize the, the last item in the list. So when he says there is six things plus seven, it's to say, hey, that seventh thing is really important. Or hey, that's, that last thing in the list is, is the interpretive key to how you should see all the other things in the list. It's, it's the lens through which you should see the rest of it. And what's the last thing on the list? Verse 19, one who sows discord among brothers. So the Lord hates when we're dishonest, when we have haughty eyes, because it's divisive, because it sows discord. Because it, what does it mean to sow discord? To separate or like tear apart that which is put together. I want you to notice how in verses 12 through 19 as a whole, God breaks down these negative, these negative things. Um, and he breaks them down. And the way my eyes saw it was we have verbal ways we can be divisive in our work, and we also have nonverbal ways which we can be divisive in our work. So look with me at the verbal ways that we can work divisively. Verse 12 says, with crooked speech. Verse 17 says, a lying tongue. Verse 19 says, a false witness who breathes out lies. These are pretty obvious ways, are they not? Like if you are at church or in your family or at work and you're talking with crooked speech and lying about people, like, yeah, you're sowing discord. And the Lord hates it. It's an abomination to him. 
when we speak in such a way that tears others down, and when we lie. But then the father warns the son of even some nonverbal ways that we can sow discord among each other. So look at verse 13. He says, winking with the eyes, signaling with the feet, pointing of the fingers. Verse 17, he says, haughty or prideful eyes. Verse 18, he says, hearts uh, that want evil to happen to people and, and feet that are quick to run to sin and evil. And I think, for me personally, and I, I would be willing to bet for a lot of you in this room, this is the more tempting and the more harmful list. Of course we know it's bad to lie. Of course we know it's bad. Sometimes we don't act on it, but of course we know that if we speak with crooked language at someone, that's going to hurt them. But how often do we do these nonverbal things behind people's backs or right in front of them when they're trying to like help us out or lead us? I remember, uh, just an example, I remember being in class in seminary once, and I was sitting in the back of the class, and, and I was you know, taking notes or whatever, and my professor was standing up in front of the class, he was trying to teach, um, he was trying to, to lead our class, and there was somebody else who was kind of in the back, but he was in front of me, and whenever this professor said something or did something that he disagreed with, he'd pull back on his chair and would like shoot eyes with his buddy across the room, and would like, say, like look at him with a sly look and say, he didn't have to say it, but his nonverbal, what his nonverbal said, this professor's a joke. This guy's kind of a moron. We don't trust him. Kind of sit back in his chair. They'd shoot glances at one another. They'd smirk with one another. They didn't have to say it out loud, but they were non-verbally sowing discord. The professor might not have caught it, but odds are he probably did. He had eyes. But I know I caught it, and lots of other people in the class caught it. Friends, God hates this type of action. He really does. Actions that sow discord among brothers and sisters. Uh, looks that we can shoot across the room to one another when someone's in front of us saying, we don't like this guy. Or a smirk when we look at somebody and say, we disagree with them. Meh, let's cast them off. One giggle that we say in front of people sowing discord. That speaks more than we think it does. According to verse 15, it leads to a destructive end. He says, if you sow, continually sowing discord, verse 15, therefore calamity will come upon him suddenly. In a moment, he will be broken beyond healing. So friends, let us be a people who strive and work for unity. Even if we disagree with our boss or our coworker or somebody, let's not be the type of person who scoffs right in front of their face in a nonverbal, disunifying way. Ephesians 4, 1 through 5 says this, I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, Amen. eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called into the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Listen, folks, we're all the same. We are one body. Let's not tear each other down. 
And we can do so in ways that we don't even realize it. I know, I have done so in ways I didn't even realize it. And I had somebody come up to me a couple times and say, hey, when, when you did this thing, you probably didn't think about it, but like, it hurt me. And I have been convicted about that before. I am, I need this lesson. Let's be those who strive for unity, who instead of having crooked speech and a lying tongue, let us strive to be trustworthy people whose yes means yes and whose no means no. A person who doesn't bend the truth to fit their narrative or their story. A person who doesn't speak in order to justify themselves and tear others down and make themselves look better. Instead of having the haughty eyes in verse 13, let's have humble eyes that genuinely see others as more important than ourselves. We say that all the time. But genuinely see their interest as more important than our interest. That's hard. It's supernatural. Even our coworkers, even our bosses that don't have Christ, that drive us crazy, we're not off the hook. May we see them as important. It means listening to others, caring for others. Instead of the nonverbal, disrespectful gazes and smirking, let us have gentle, non-assuming spirits who assume the best in people, who give the benefit of the doubt, who don't think, oh, this person's just out to get me, when in reality they're not. More than justifying ourselves, more than always wanting to be right, more than always wanting to be the funny guy, may we seek unity amongst us. Let us work for it in our churches, in our families, in our workplaces, so that we can reflect the character of God. There's one Father, one baptism, one Lord. Show it off. So we're to work responsibly. We are to work hard. And we are to work for unity. And all of this glorifies God. And I know that as you sit here, under this teaching of wisdom, uh, it's easy to feel shame. It's easy to feel regret. Maybe the, one of the financial decisions that I threw out, you were like, shoot, I'm doing that right now. Or I've done this in the past. It's easy to feel kind of squirmy and embarrassed or, 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 or bad about it. Maybe there's times where you didn't work with integrity. You're thinking about times where you did something that hurt somebody and you haven't made amends about it. Maybe you can look back in your life, and, and, and maybe you're in this right now, where you're lazy. You're just straight up lazy, and your family is suffering because of it. It's, the yard looks horrible. Everything's a mess. The electricity bill didn't get paid because we were kind of all over the place. Our job performance is struggling because we look like the sluggard instead of the ant. It's easy to feel that shame when we, when we look at this. And maybe they feel the weight of all of this on your shoulder. At least one of them, maybe all three of them on your shoulders right now. Maybe, you're, maybe you've made irresponsible credit decisions and you're living in debt or you co-signed for a loan recently or you're living outside your means and you can say, oh, snap, I'm snared. I'm caught in the words of my mouth. Well, friends, there is reason for you to have hope this morning. Praise God that the Proverbs don't just say, Okay, here's your problem. You did this, you did this. Have fun figuring it out. I'll see you in heaven. That's not what God does in the Proverbs. God's, God identifies the problem. He shows us what wisdom is, and then he gives us instruction to say, here's what you do. You want to have a wise, simple, God-glorifying life? Here's what you do. If you're struggling to 
I mean, if you're struggling to work for unity, pray that you would seek unity, that you would see others as more important than yourselves, as you would, that you would strive and intentionally work to not be that guy or that girl who does these actions. If you're struggling to work hard in your families or in your jobs, go study the ant. Take good notes and then do what they do. Don't wait to be told what to do. Take care of what's right in front of you every day. Collect a little bit every day. If you are in debt or in a terrible, finan- terrible financial situation, humbly fight and claw your way out of it. Give your eyes no sleep, your eyelids no slumber. Get out. So that's reason to have hope. God gives us a way out. But we have reason to have more hope than that. In Job, Job had lost all that he had. We've, we looked at this recently. Job lost all his finances, all his possessions. Job lost his family. Job, in effect, lost his friends because they gave him horrible advice and treated him with, with just horribly. And Job prays to God. He prays out of his despair. He prays looking and grasping for hope. And this is what Job prays in Job 17.3. Job prays this to God. Lay down a pledge for me with you. Who is there who will put up security for me? What is Job praying here? Lord, I'm too risky. I need someone to help me financially. I've lost everything I have, but no one will. They look at me, and they don't want to assume my debt. They don't want to happen to them what happened to me. And he, I mean, they're justified, right? He says, I have no one, no family, no friends, no one to make security for me. Who will do it? Who will make a pledge? Who will make security? And the answer to Job's question is God himself. God himself puts up a security for Job. And guess what? The answer for all of us is that God himself puts up security for us. Listen, you might be, I mean, all of us here are in a worse spot than we realize. You might be here and you're feeling the weight of financial debt. But guess what? You are under, if you're not in Christ, you are under a heavier debt and weight than financial debt. You are under the weight of the debt of your sin. And that pales in comparison to financial debt. Each of us, without Christ, are held captive by debt that we can never afford to get out of. Even if we wanted to pay for the debt that our sins owed us, we can't pay for it. Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And it, so what our sins earn for us is eternal death. It's got power and grip over us. But praise be to God. Praise be to God that God came in the person of Jesus. And Jesus, first of all, accomplished the work that he had to do. Jesus went to the cross. He didn't make excuses. He could have. He didn't put it off, but he went to the cross because that was the work that he had to do. And what was his work? To die so that he could pay the penalty for your sin. And he paid for it in full. Jesus paid for it. He paid for it once and for all. Listen, all of us are too risky for Jesus. If it was If he wasn't full of grace and mercy, when we approached him about co-signing for our debt, a wise person would say, ain't no way I'm signing up for your debt. Your debt is leading to hell. 
but Jesus took it for us because he's full of grace and mercy. Listen to Colossians 2, verses 13 through 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the circumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us and its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to his cross. He disarmed, the, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them and for them. So friends, if you're in Christ, you are set free from the debt that you can never get out of. The chains that once shackled you have been eternally broken. The person who put the chains on you, eternally shamed. And now because of this, we are set free to work hard for the glory of Christ. Not because our good works, not because our works earn favor for us or justify us in any way, but because our debt has been wiped away. Now we respond with our lives. Jesus paid it all, not just some of it. He paid all of it. And now we can sing songs like we're going to sing in just a minute that says this. Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full. With the precious blood that my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. Let's pray. Father, all of us stood underneath a debt we can never afford. But where our sins are many, your mercy is more. So help us, Lord, to, to see ourselves rightly as, as pretty, as really bad off. But to see you rightly as more gracious, more loving, more merciful than we could ever know. And help us, Lord, to see, get the order right. Not to work hard in order to justify ourselves. But because we have been justified by the debt-clearing, merciful God, I pray that we would give our lives to work hard for the glory of your name, that we would give our lives as an offering, that we would give our lives away freely. So help us, Lord, to respond however we need to respond, to respond by um, repenting of the ways where we have worked foolishly, laying it aside and responding with one of the ways that we're supposed to respond, or if it's and responding by saying, Lord, you've paid my debt, and it's no longer held against me. Um, so we pray that you'd help us by your spirit to respond, um, yeah, by your grace, and, and respond for your glory in our lives. And uh, yeah, we love you, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and respond to the word.